friends. Delighted to be with you. I, I see you now as an R&D unit within the Calvary Chapel movement. You're out front. You're scouting in the world uh, where, it, where it's going and where it needs to go. And I uh, honor that. Um, a couple little biographical realities. I grew up about 100 miles north of here, east of Bellingham, Mount Baker School District. Um, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. It's very remote. I grew up milking cows and logging in the Norwegian Lutheran tradition. I went to the little Lutheran country church and uh, in front of it was the cemetery, which was the alumni association of our church. And about half of my family was in the church and half was in the cemetery. I became a historical charismatic when my father used to give me cemetery tours to introduce me to his great cloud of witnesses, his Hebrews 11, the people who had influenced him uh, to follow Christ. And uh, I think we had a simple creed in those days, love God, follow Jesus, serve the world, kind of Trinitarian. And I grew up in the same class as Norm Mailing. He was my best friend growing up. He became the prosecutor in King County for 28 years. He ran unopposed. I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember. He died 10 years ago this next month. I helped bury him. Uh, his successor, Dan Satterberg, uh, who's now the King County prosecutor, is a dear friend and worked with my classmate, Norm. We, we grew up in a time when we, we were just commissioned to go to the world. One of my, there were three of us in our Sunday school class. We had the same logger for a teacher for 10 years in this little country church. One of us became a missionary in Zambia, Africa. One of us became the prosecutor in King County, Seattle, ran for governor in the state. Um, and I'm the third person. And we're the product of a tiny little country church where people love Jesus. We was broke, but not po. My house washed down the river in a flood my senior year in high school, so we grew up homeless my senior year. We lived in a chicken coop until I graduated from high school. Uh, my mother never went to high school. She was a bag lady at Safeway in Puyallup till she was 85, bagging groceries in the Safeway store downtown Puyallup which, by the way, is the biggest city in the United States that ends and begins with P. Uh, it is an urban conference. You ought to know things like that. Uh, my dad had never heard of Harvard, so when my younger brother got a scholarship to Harvard, my dad made one of the great speeches of all time. Denny, I don't think you should go to Harvard. I never heard of it. I don't think it's a very good school. Besides, you're already a graduate of the University of Puget Sound. I mean, it was off my father's cognitive map to think you should cross the United States to go to some puny school like Harvard. Um, so we, we grew up as peasants, believe me, and in rural Whatcom County in a Lutheran Norwegian settlement where to meet a Swede was a cross-cultural experience. And uh, I was asking people where I should go to school and a friend of my Sunday school teacher said Moody Bible Institute. I'd never heard of it, but it was in Chicago and it sounded like a way out of my valley. I bought a $44 bus ticket from Bellingham, Washington to Chicago. I could have flown for $88, but for three days and three nights, I traveled on Greyhound from Bellingham to Chicago, eating cold fried chicken and cold sandwiches for three days and came into the city of Chicago as an 18-year-old off the farm. And um, nothing could have been more shocking but more exhilarating than to be plopped into a human zoo like Chicago and hear the cacophony of international voices and faces on the subway. I, I have to tell you, on Saturdays, I used to love to pay 25 cents in those days, and you could ride the subway for 35 miles from north to south. And uh, at that time, Chicago had more people in the inner city than 25 of the 50 states. And it was truly an international city. And 
The beautiful part of that was God used that experience to transform me. And I, I developed, again, a, a, a concern to serve God, and it turned an urban direction at that time. My wife of the last 57 years was a freshman student in the same class. What surprised me was she asked Moody for a black roommate. That was two years before Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, 1956. Um, that attracted me to her, and we've been married for 57 years as of this summer. And um, that's also a great surprise. And in 1965, after being married and starting ministry here my, in Seattle and Wallingford area, finishing college at Seattle Pacific and University of Washington, my wife and I moved back to Chicago in 1965 to, so I could go to seminary and she could finish her music degrees. And we were only gonna stay a little while. We ended up staying 35 years. We raised our boys in the inner city. Um, what happened there totally shocked me. The riots of the city were simultaneous with the riots in Los Angeles, Watts area, and Englewood. If you know Boston, New York, Detroit, Washington, D.C., every city in America, it seemed, was burning. The two riots, the two revolutions were simultaneous. The Civil Rights Revolution, Abraham Lincoln said black people would be free in 1963, in 1863. In 1963, they still weren't free. You couldn't vote if you were black in 14 states in 1963. Blacks were not free in this society. The anti-war movement was the other revolution, began at Berkeley, on the Sproul Hall steps of the University of California. It spread and it became the anti-war movement, it started as a free speech movement at Berkeley, but those two revolutions hit the city at the same time and evangelicals panicked. And, and the most shocking thing that happened to me, more shocking than Darwin, Marx, and Freud at the University of Washington was the failure of the white evangelical church in the 60s. They fled. We called it white flight and white fright. I couldn't believe it. We, we claim to have the right view of the Bible. All scripture is inspired, even inerrant. People took the Bible and ran. The people who grew up singing red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Tried to take the Holy Spirit and run. Fortunately, the Holy Spirit didn't go with them, stayed in the city, but that's another story. The people who had the right view of missions left. The whole Moody Trinity Wheaton establishment, which is my people. Nothing could have been more shocking to my wife and I. We had two healthy boys and then our third daughter died at birth. Born at a Swedish hospital here in Seattle. And um, we buried her up in the little country cemetery where my family is buried, where I grew up. Um, and we committed our life to go to the big city. And we said, we're leaving her here to remind us who we are. But this is our Ebenezer Stone. She gave her life for us. We didn't have any insurance. She would have been blind, heart damage, eye damage, brain damage. Uh, she gave her life for us. So we moved to Chicago with our two preschool sons. We moved into a one mile square with 60,000 folks. We lived there for 35 years. My kids went to inner city public schools. We, we made a commitment to live at the level of the people we were working with, which was public aid congregation. And um, we did that because we couldn't imagine being authentic missionaries if we were commuting in from outside. Moreover, we couldn't imagine sending our kids to some other school if we were pastoring people in the poverty area. So we put our kids in the same school. And um, 
I know everybody's interested. What happened to those kids? Uh, our oldest son teaches at the Native American High School on the Lummi Reservation. He has his master's from PLU. He's getting his third degree from the North American Indian College studying Native American culture and language. His name is Woody. And in grade school, he brought a black friend into our home. We fed him for six, six months. And then we realized he's not just uh, hungry, he's homeless. So we went to a Chicago courtroom and adopted a kid named Brian. Now, the problem is we already had a kid named Brian. So our family has two kids named Brian, White Brian and Black Brian, otherwise known as Frobro. Um, Frobro was four grades behind when he came into our family, but thanks to my wife's tutoring, he finished high school and he went to college and he went in the military and he has a college degree. He's been social active in ministry, loves Jesus. Um, our youngest son, White Brian, lives in inner city DC with his wife and serves the Mustard Seed Foundation developing urban grants in Latin America is fluent Spanish. Uh, that's what happens to kids when you raise them in the inner city, especially if they're white. They've come to realize that they're a minority. Most of their friends are people of color, all different colors. And so they would say to you, if they were here, we graduated two to four years behind national academic norms in English, math, and science, but maybe two to 10 years ahead in cross-cultural competency, uh, worldview, and motivation. My two oldest boys ran against each other for homecoming king their senior year in their high school. This was an inner city high school which had 63 nations in the student body. They were teaching in 11 languages, a Chicago public school in the inner city, teaching in 11 languages, 35% African-American, but from many different African cultures, tobacco culture, cotton culture, coal culture, Caribbean culture, many different black cultures, about 28% Asian, but from Palestinian to South Asian, Afghan, all the countries of Asia were in our kids' high school. 21% Spanish, but if you know Spanish, Latin, America, you know that underneath Spanishness is Indianness, Amira and Quechua and many other Indian. So that the kids were going to school in a human zoo that was teaching in 11 languages. And they said to me, Dad, you, you have no idea what a blessing it was for us to go to this inner city public school in Chicago. So we, we did raise the, the boys there. Um, my wife is a concert pianist. She taught at Moody. Uh, her first master's was in piano, her second one in theology and art, and her, inter her doctorate was in inter international worship and art. And so it was not that we were anti-education, but we really turned Chicago into a laboratory for uh, our calling. Um, and we made three vows, one to raise our children there, secondly to, to love the city of Chicago and to learn about it, and so we studied it, lectured about it. And, um, and then thirdly, my goal was to find a theology as big as the city. Uh, I am proof you can graduate from places like Moody and Trinity and not know anything about city and scripture uh, because it just wasn't on the faculty agenda. And until the cities exploded, I didn't know. And I, this is kind of what I wanted to say at the beginning tonight. I, January 1966, I had what I would call a conversion experience. I read a liberal sociologist who wrote an article in the Chicago Community Renewal Society journal. And it's, it, the title was, Why Conservative Christians Cannot Survive in Cities. That's a grabber. I read it. Stephen Rose, the sociologist, said, the Bible is a rural book. The God of the Bible makes gardens. His favorite people are shepherds or vine growers. His least favorite people are urban dwellers. 
Consider David, God's favorite. As long as he stayed on the farm, played with sheep, wrote hymns, killed giants, he's a good guy. But when he moved into the city and got involved in politics, he got all messed up. The lesson is stay away from cities. And then he said this, the problem with evangelicals, and he was talking to people like me, I grew up memorizing scripture. We used to have quiz-offs. I grew up before television, if you can believe that. And we used to have Bible quizzes. We'd memorize whole chapters in one night and then we'd have quiz contests about those. That was youth group activity in the Lutheran church where I grew up. I don't know what your church does, but that's what we did in the rural area after milking cows. Bible quiz-offs, right? He said, the problem with people like me is we swallow the Bible. And without knowing it, we're swallowing an, an anti-urban worldview. The more Bible we get inside of us, the more anti-city we will become. Now, when I read that, I said, I don't think that's right, but I can't prove it. I'm going to have to find out. Now, a good revolution should do two things. It should force you to become informed, and secondly, to define your priorities. And both of those things happened with me. I made a vow. I'm going to study city and scripture, and I'm going to find out if there is a theology as big as Chicago. And that has been the title of a book, which Justin tells me he's reading. But also, it's, um, it was a quest to save my life. I said, if, if God's agenda is to empty the city, I'm not going to keep my kids here. Just because a sociology book says I should be here. If there is no biblical mandate to love and serve God in the city, then I need to know that. And uh, fortunately, my professors at Trinity allowed me to do a lot of independent studies instead of traditional classes. They recognized that I, had, I was on fire and I needed some answers. I continued on for a second master's and doctoral work studying this. And uh, it was not, you know, I grew up on the farm. I, I mean, I never doubted God's love or salvation or the mission commitment to the whole world. But I honestly needed to know, does God really care about cities? And what I found was this, and I'm, because most of you are young, I'm a, and I made these decisions when I was young, I'm, I'm gonna take a little time to tell you how I went about it. I got out my Hebrew and Greek concordance, you can do it in English too, but I discovered the word city or cities occurs in the Bible 1,250 times. 1,090 times in the Old Testament alone. Now the church has built doctrines like the virgin birth on two texts. By the way, I would believe the virgin birth if we just had one passage. It's a very important idea. But 1,250 city texts in the Bible. I found 142 cities in the Bible. Some mentioned once, some mentioned hundreds of times. So I began before computers pulling these texts out by hand and studying 51 texts on Sodom. 51 texts, 34 in the Old Testament, 17 in the New. The city God destroyed. Pay attention to this. Why did God destroy the city? I always thought because they had a gay rights ordinance maybe, huh? The red letter edition of, uh, you know, Sin City is Sodom, right? And it's all about sex. Well, what does Ezekiel 16 say about it? The divine commentary on the death of Sodom is this. Ezekiel 16, 45 to 50. The prophet says, this is the sin of Sodom. They had a surplus of wealth. They were proud. They didn't care for the poor and needy. I hate that, says the Lord, therefore I remove them. Now, do you know any city where the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer? Show me one that isn't. That's the Sodom disease. 
And if that's true, America is in trouble. While we're trying to increase the wealth of our cities, our country, and allow countries in other parts of the world to decline, that's the Sodom disease. We have wealth, we're proud of it. It becomes our problem. Ezekiel 16, the whole chapter of Ezekiel 16 is a divine commentary on the death of a city. That's, pay attention to that. On the other hand, it's in that chapter we read the prayer of, of Abraham is that if 10 righteous people could be found in that city, the city would be preserved. This is the Old Testament equivalent of salt and light. Remember Jesus said we should be salt and light in the world? What does it mean 10 people could preserve a city? It means that the presence of the godly is the best guarantee of the preservation of the ungodly. You get it? The presence of the godly in the sinful city is the best guarantee the city has that it's going to survive. Ten people could have saved that city. God is on record saying that. I won't destroy the city if you could find ten righteous people there. That's why I love what's happening in Fresno, where in a city which in America now leads the U.S. in per capita poverty, a city the size of Seattle almost, 500,000 people in the city limits of Fresno. Um, there was a neighborhood called Lowell. Lowell was the sick community. It led the city in crime and bad schools and all the other indices. 27 evangelical families agreed to covenant and move into Lowell and raise their children there. And their only goal was to become neighbors and friends. No budgets, no programs, just neighbors. And they transformed Lowell. And the mayor of Fresno is a Christian, the chief police is a Christian, and they give tours now of the Lowell community because Christians moved into the tough, bad neighborhood. They saw the city transformed. I really believe in that model. It's as old as Nehemiah. But as I began to read the Bible from a city perspective, I read about Joseph. Now, Joseph was trafficked. He was sold twice, once to the Midianites and once to the Egyptians. Made it into the palace, that's a miracle. Then into the prison. Was saved by a butler's bad memory. And end up as the assistant to the pharaoh. And if you read Genesis 41 and 47, you have his urban career in a nutshell. He had two seven-year plans, one for budget surpluses and one for budget deficits. He urbanized the economy of Egypt. He bought up the land with government funds, moved people into cities, and fed them by means of the direct government program. Was he a capitalist or a socialist? It makes a fun Bible study. It really does. I've done it all over the world with students and pastors. And Argentina, one of the places I did it early on many years ago, people came out fighting um, because they would like to think he was a capitalist, but he really functioned as a socialist. Using pagan pharaoh's money to feed the whole Middle East. Now, there are 13 chapters of sacred texts about that. What is the lesson of Joseph? Is it possibly that God could use people in pagan governments to use pagan resources to feed hungry nations? I think so. I think this is text we should lift out and say these are urban texts. So one of the things I did was not only study the 1,250 references, but then I started collecting case studies of the cities in Scripture like Sodom and Jerusalem and, and uh, Antioch and all the cities of the Bible. What, what is God teaching us about cities? If you just take the Jerusalem texts alone, you would be studying 1,100 years of biblical history on Jerusalem from 1,000 B.C. when David captured the city from the Jebusites all the way to the end of the New Testament. You have hundreds of models of urban ministry. The priests, the prophets, and the kings were all involved in loving that city over a period of 1,100 years. 
Jesus wept over that city, died in that city, and rose again in that city. Jerusalem became a founding city for the church. And there's so many ways in which God worked in that city to love on that city through the prophets, priests, and kings. As I began to do, before we had computers, as I say, I was pulling out these texts by hand over the years and trying to imagine Jesus, who is a photograph of God, weeping over a city. He wept twice, once at the grave of Lazarus that we know. The other is at the impending death of the city where he cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou hast stoned us the prophets and killest them that are sent unto you. How often would I have gathered thee as a hen gathered your chicks, but you would not. Jesus saw the city was going to die. He wept over it. That's the passion of God for a city. Yeah, that's how God feels about the city. He weeps over it. He gives his life to it. I love to study the intertestamental period, the hundreds of years between the end of the Old Testament and the New. God scattered the Jews into cities all over the Middle East. The Jews in Babylon invented the synagogue because they didn't have a temple anymore. They invented new prayer language. And of course they brought it back to Israel and it became a model for early church. The Alexandria refugees in Egypt invented the Greek Bible. They had to to save their kids. Their kids were no longer learning Jewish. And so they invented the urban street Greek Bible called Koine or Common Greek. In other words, God is sending people into refugee modes. Are not, refugees are not victims. They're on mission. They're going to school. They're learning new skills, new perspectives, things that couldn't have been learned in Israel. Now they get to learn because they have been scattered by God into the rest of the world. And those gifts, the Greek Bible, which was an urban Bible, urban vocabulary, street language Greek, that Bible could be used everywhere in the ancient world, all the way to Pakistan, because Alexander the Great had conquered all the way to Pakistan. That Bible could go all over Europe, North Africa. The synagogue became a portable model for the church. It was organized by lay people because there were no clergy anymore. So those gifts of the diaspora were used in the mission of the early church. And so as I reflected on that, I realized God is now sending the Chinese all over the world, the Japanese all over the world, the Koreans all over the world. Why? Are they victims? No, they're going to school. They're hardwired back into Asia. I'm looking forward to an Asian Pentecost. And some of them may be the students I'm teaching currently in Hong Kong, where I'm on faculty. And um, some of them have thousands of members and they have visions unbelievable of what they want to do in the world today. It's amazing. China is no longer a destination of mission. It's a sending missions country. And that's amazing too because the Christian church is growing so fast in China that in 20 years there'll be more Christians in China than in the U.S. I think that's extraordinary. God is at work in the world. And it's an urban world. When I understand the infancy narrative of Jesus... I'll let me take the stained glass off Matthew's gospel for you for just a few moments. Asian-born baby Jesus, born in a borrowed barn, becomes an international refugee, unregistered, undocumented alien in Africa. The Christmas story is about an intercontinental refugee named Jesus. The Holy Family is undocumented, friends, Americans eat your heart out. If anybody ought to love the undocumented, it's us, the Holy Family. Our Lord Jesus was undocumented. Asian-born baby became African refugee. And by the way, every baby boy in Bethlehem under age two died for Jesus before he could die for them on the cross. If anybody understands the pain of crack babies, fetal alcohol, brain-damaged kids, HIV-infected kids who die for the sins of adults, Jesus would understand 
all those babies died for him before he could die for them. That's pain, okay? Now, I didn't invent this story. I just took the stained glass off Matthew 1 and 2. The local shepherds came to honor Jesus because Jesus was the shepherd king, the descendant of David. But who were these wise guys, the Babylonian worship team, the so-called wise men? My Middle East friends, and I did much of my doctoral work in the Middle East, and I learned from them how they view the wise men. The wise men are the Arabs, and they brought the gifts from the Arab world, from Babylon, from Persia, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not traditional baby gifts, by the way. They came as a caravan. How did they come? Why did they come? Well, I think Daniel in Babylon prepared the way. I think one day he slipped into the Babylonian library in the palace and he edited a clay tablet. He put in a footnote, someday you're going to see a star. And that star is announcing the king of heaven will be born in Israel. And when you see that star, saddle the camels and head west. 600 years later, the star appeared. Somebody Googled the library. They said, what is this? And they discovered this footnote. And all of the Christians in the Middle East today, almost all of them are Arabs. And they love this text. And what they mean by it is, Abraham's other child, Ishmael, his firstborn, was also included in the Christmas story in this way. Remember his mother prayed for him and named him Ishmael, which in Hebrew means God sees, God hears, God hears. So in response to Hagar's prayer for her son, the people who came from Babylon with gifts from the Arab world were coming to honor Jesus. They're the other son of Abraham. And so the Middle East reconciliation starts with the manger story. And if you read the Pentecost list of all the people who are in the upper room, the 120, you know what the last name on that list is in Acts 2? Arab, Arab. Arabs were in the early church from the beginning. And so we're dealing with the Islamic issue today, remember? And we have to start with the Christmas story to say they were included. The Arabs were invited, they were included. Hagar's prayer was answered. They came from the, and, and by the way, the wise men ended up saving the life of Jesus. They told Joseph, get out of town. Herod's planning to come here, not to worship, but probably kill the, the baby. And so thanks to the Arab wise men, the Jewish baby Jesus lived. I think when we're talking to Muslims today, we can say, oh, by the way, the Arabs were present in the Christmas story. They're part of my Bible and they're part of the story that I honor. The Bible is so much more significant than so many of us have, have, have understood. Jesus was urban. Matthew 9, 35 to 38. He went about all the cities. The Greek word for going about is paragasita. He visited. Josephus said there were about uh, 306 little cities in Galilee. Jesus was using those little cities as practice ministry training for the big cities of the Roman Empire. And then Jesus went about or visited. Secondly, he preached the gospel of the kingdom. He taught and he healed all the disciples, healed all the diseases among the people. Visiting, teaching, preaching, healing. So in response to that, we should be not only visiting, we should be planting churches because Jesus preached. We should be planting schools because Jesus taught. 
we should be planting hospitals and clinics because Jesus healed all the diseases of the people, right? It's that simple. That's a summary of Jesus' urban ministry. He preached, so we plant churches, right? I hear you talking about plant churches. My calling has been to plant schools. That's because Jesus taught also, discipled um, people. And then plant clinics and hospitals because Jesus healed all the diseases among the people. I think it's fairly clear that Jesus had an urban ministry and he called his disciples to do that. And he used the cities of Galilee as training ground for the cities of the Roman Empire. I love to study Paul's approach to cities. He never went and almost never did the same thing twice. You know, if, you, if I take you on a quick snapshot of the second journey of Paul, after the Jerusalem Council, which I call a faith and culture conference, the church had to sort out the love issues and the faith issues and decide what was the gospel and what was culture, and they did that. And then Paul went to Athens, Acts 16. Athens was the cultural capital of the ancient world, no longer the political capital, Rome was. So in Athens, what did Paul do? He did a museum tour, studied sculptures, and then he went to Mars Hill, the scholar's place, and he quoted, quoted Greek poets. That's what Paul did to reach the cultural city. In the next chapter, he went to Corinth. Corinth was a blue-collar industrial city. What did Paul do there? He started a business, leatherworking. We call leatherworking tent work, tent making, but it's really leatherwork. Tents were the biggest things you made out of leather in the ancient world. Now here's the genius of Paul's business strategy. A Lutheran scholar has written a dissertation on tent making in the first century. And this is what it involved. The apostle Paul to have a leatherwork business would have to know the animal keepers of the region because he would be buying skins from the farmers. The blue collar people he would hire would be turning those skins into products like chairs, like clothing, like shoes. And the biggest thing, of course, you'd make out of leather would be tents, portable Motel 6. And so Paul, who knew the, the poorest of the poor, the rural keepers, the animal keepers, and Paul, who knew the blue-collar workers because they'd be working in the business, the rich people were the only ones who traveled and needed tents. So the Lutheran scholar who wrote a book called Tent Making and Apostleship makes it very clear. The Apostle Paul, when he went to Thessalonica later, but also to Corinth, started a business to fund his own ministry. But it was not just any business. It was a business that put him in touch with top to bottom of the city. Very strategic. When Paul went to Ephesus, he went to the synagogue to reach Jews. If you want to know how Paul did that, read the book of Romans in one sitting. Romans is one rabbinic argument from beginning to end. In fact, if you read chapter 28 of Acts, Luke says Paul rented a house at his own expense for two years in verse 30, but in verse 23 it says Paul argued with the Jews from morning till evening about the kingdom of God. If you want to know what Paul sounded like from morning till evening, he was rehearsing the book of Romans for a whole day. That's Paul's message to the Jews. It's called rabbinic. But then Paul got thrown out of the theater in Ephesus, so what, or in the synagogue. So you know what he did? He rented a theater the Scholae of Tyrannus. Scholae in Greek means school. It's our word for school. Scholae is also the word in Greek for theater. The actor will be, appreciate this. The Greeks come to theater. They don't come to synagogues. So Paul wants to reach Greece. You rent a theater. Acts 19.8. And Paul's approach changed. Instead of using rabbinic argument, he used Socratic argument. Dialogumenos is the present participle there, dialogue. Dialogue is question, answer, question, answer, all day long. In fact, Luke says 
fifth to the tenth hour daily. That's from 11 o'clock in the morning to four in the afternoon for two years. Paul did dialogue in the theater to reach Greeks. What's very, oh, and by the way, Luke says, and all Asia heard the gospel. Paul didn't go all over Asia. The gospel traveled. You penetrate the city, the gospel bounces, okay? You penetrate Seattle, Bellingham will hear it. Everett will hear it. Skykomish, Olympia, Bremerton. The big city is the amplifier, the woofer and tweeter of, a, tweeter of an amplifying system. Paul knew that. You penetrate the city, the gospel will travel. So Paul wanted to reach Jews. He went to synagogues. He wanted to reach Greeks. You go to theaters. He used dialogumenos, the present tense participle, dialogue, Socratic method. You want to reach Jews, you use rabbinic method. Um, here's what I conclude. Paul adjusts his message, his methods, and his meeting place every city he ever attended. The 3M, remember 3M Corporation? The 3Ms of Paul, he adjusts his message, his methods, and his meeting place. Every city he went to. He never went anywhere smaller than Thessalonica. He followed the contours of the urbanized Roman Empire. Nothing could be more clear than that biblical attempt was focused on the cities of the Roman Empire. And those of us who read the Pauline epistles somehow miss the drama of this. So let me take one case study, the book of Philemon, and let me give you the 60-year history of that book. 60 years, okay? It starts in 51 when Paul went into Ephesus, Acts 19. Stayed two years. 90 miles north of Ephesus, up the, Lycus, the Meander River Valley called the Lycus Valley is twin cities of Colossae and Laodicea. That'd be like Bellingham and Linden or Blaine and Linden. Uh, Colossae had a landowner who owned slaves named Philemon. And he came down to the city just like people in Bellingham come to Seattle for Mariners games, for theater, for shopping, just a getaway for the museums, space museum, the airplane museum at Boeing, whatever. Starbucks, you know, they come to this big city for lots of reasons. The wealthy do that. He was, he was reached by Paul in the theater, and he went back home, and in the year 52 or 53, he planted a house church in his Colossi home where he had slaves. One of his slaves named Onesimus, whose name means profitable, ceased to be profitable. He stole the offering or stole money from his master and fled a thousand miles to Rome. He stole money in Asia and ran to Europe to get lost in, the, in Rome. 10 years later, Paul's in Rome in house arrest, having rented his own house, Acts 28, and Paul had six assistants out in the streets, Tychicus, Epaphras, Aristarchus, Lucas, Demas, and Marcus. I gave them all Greek names. They're all Greeks. They're all ethnic. You see, Paul wasn't trying to reach Latin Rome. Latin Rome had ministries. There were lots of things going on in Latin Rome, but ethnic Rome was where Paul was. And so he had these Greek assistants. One of them, Epaphras, was a Phrygian who spoke the Phrygian language. And he was probably speaking out there, and that was a dialect spoken in the area of Colossae. And he's probably out there in a piazza someday, somewhere, sharing the good news of Jesus, and guess what? Onesimus, who had stolen money in Asia, ran away to get lost, draws near and hears the gospel in his own Phrygian dialect in the city of Rome and eventually is taken to Paul's apartment where he has Bible studies and discipleship training. And then Paul writes a cover letter we call Philemon. 330 words, 
a little letter, personal letter from Paul in the middle of your New Testament. It's about a slave. And it's basically back to Philemon. And you, you know the letter, I'm sure. It starts out with eight verses buttering up Philemon. Your spirituality is so terrific. You have no idea how much joy I get here in my imprisonment of your spirituality, your prayer life. You're just awesome. You're the Mother Teresa of Colossae, whatever. Yeah, okay. So you know he's going to do something. And sure enough, in verse 9, he twists the knife in his back. And he says, it's about Onesimus. I'm going to send you my heart, but not as a slave. He's, he's my son. You see, Paul, Paul is saying, Philemon, I led you to Christ in the theater over in Ephesus. Now I've led your slave to Christ here in Rome. I'm sending him back, but not as a slave. I want you to meet your new brother. Now this little book has 330 words in Greek. The Gettysburg Address of Lincoln had 278 words. It's just a little bit longer than the Gettysburg Address, but it has the same kind of significance, believe me. It's about slaves being set free. Slaves are no longer slaves, they're in Christ, they're brothers, right? That's very important, biblical theology. Well, I think this, oh, and by the way, Paul says, if he owes you anything, charge it to my account. Does Paul have a line of credit? You bet. The next verse says, oh, I remind you, you owe your very life to me. And that is so subtle. I just love it. And then he, he says, oh, by the way, fix up your guest room. I hope to come and see how things are working out. Signed, love, Paul. Rolls it up into scroll, puts his wax seal on it, and Epaphras and, and Onesimus are going to carry this little letter a thousand miles from Europe to Asia and a door will knock on Colossae and they'll hand this letter to Philemon. And the question is, what, what's going to happen? Right? Now, Roman law is very clear. You have to execute the slave that steals money in Rome and runs away. There was one exception called manumission papers. It was very rare and it was very expensive. And that is if you had a slave that was just super nice and maybe they're dying of cancer in their old age, you could, you could go down to the government building and pay a large fee called a manumission fee and get them papers that would set them free. It was rarely done. It was very expensive. But listen to what Paul said. If he owes you anything, I'm sending him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Paul's expecting Philemon, who has money stolen from him by the slave, now to buy his freedom. In other words, he's going to pay double. Urban evangelism is not cheap. You sometimes have to pay double to set people free. Philemon was costly to, you know, he had to pay twice. I think in Act 4 of this drama, the first integrated house church happened because I think Philemon finally agreed he had to do this. Now, it, probably it ended slavery in that town. I'm sure every other slave owner came to Philemon and said, you, 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 can't, you can't do that. You're going to ruin the economy of the Lycus Valley. All our slaves are going to run away, see Paul, become Christians, and come back and expect to be brothers. This is not going to work, Paul. Probably now you know how Second Calvary Chapel got founded in the city by the people who didn't want to go to church with slaves, right? Can't prove it, but probably something like that. The end of the story happens in early church history in the year 110. All the original apostles are dead. And Ignatius, the pastor of Antioch, is being taken to Rome to be killed. On the way, as a martyr, he writes in every prison where he's kept overnight, he writes letters to the Christians, to the leaders in every city. When he got to Smyrna, he wrote a letter to the bishop of Ephesus in the year 110. You know what the bishop's name was? 
Onesimus. I have a three volume set in my library by A.M. Greenslade, an English scholar who has studied this very carefully. And in the first of his three volumes, he says, there is no doubt. Catholics and evangelicals agree on this. This is the same Onesimus. The former runaway slave is now the leading pastor of the city of Ephesus in the year 110. Now, by the way, who was the leading pastor before him? The Apostle John. And before him, Timothy. That's a pretty cool church. When the lead pastor is the last beloved disciple, John, and then 14 years later, the curtain opens in early church history and the pastor is a, re a former slave. Oh, by the way, how did that little book get in the New Testament? A.M. Greenside goes on to say, we all know now that all of Paul's letters, which were written everywhere and scattered all over the Roman Empire, were collected at one place early in the second century in the city of Ephesus. Who do you suppose collected Paul's letters? Onesimus. He, you see, he had been in Rome. He knew Tychicus, Epaphras, Aristarchus, Lucas, Emus, and Marcus, Peter, Mark, all the people in Rome. And now he's the leading pastor of Ephesus, the biggest church of Asia. He knew all the Eastern Asian leaders. So he was in a perfect position to collect all of Paul's public epistles. No doubt about that. Well, then how did this little personal letter get in? Now, this is my own theory. Nobody can prove me right or wrong, okay? But I'm going to give you a little insight. I think one day Philemon sent a tweet, fax, I don't know. Come and see me. I'm dying. Um, my son, I, I have something to say to you, Onesimus. Uh, I'd like to give you some money, but you ripped me off, remember? I don't have any money, and I had to buy your freedom. But I do have one thing that nobody has ever seen. It's a personal letter from Paul, and it's about you. And I'm going to give it to you. I think Onesimus stuck this into the middle of your New Testament as a personal testimony of a slave set free by the gospel. Now, the fundamental difference between Jesus and Ann Landers is at this point. Ann Landers offered advice. We're not in the advice business in the city. We're in the news business, okay? The news is that Jesus died for you. Your stock went up. You are somebody now, okay? My black son, who we adopted 40 years ago this March, he sat my wife and my, me down about a month after we adopted him. And he said, Dad, Mom, I decided to become a Christian tonight. I see how it works. You sent your son Woody into my school. He became my best friend. He kept bringing me to this apartment, feeding me. Uh, because you love your son, you adopted me. He said, I see how it works. God sent Jesus into the world and anybody who loves Jesus gets adopted and gets family. Isn't that cool? The kid nailed it, man. That is the gospel. That is what we're about. The gospel doesn't patronize the poor. It elevates the poor. It's, we're not giving advice to them. Advice is something you must do. News is something that's already been done on your behalf. So I've hoped in this little review to save the Bible from beginning to end is a theology as big as the city and it is something that we ought to claim as the treasure. We celebrate it, study it, live it, model it, and above all, think the gospel is not only good news, it is totally liberating for the people who get. We're not patronizing the poor when we share good news for them. We patronize them when we give them advice. We're talking down to them. This is something I have learned that you need to do. That's patronizing. But telling them what Jesus did for them, exchanging his life for them, 
that's not patronizing anybody. And that's what the business we're in. Now, why is all this important? In 1978, I put my two oldest boys, white and black, into an inner city public school. And I, I remember being inside getting an orientation from the principal who became my great friend, a Catholic layman. And I remember him saying, there are 2,000 students in this school. This is one of 65 inner city public high schools in Chicago. 65 schools. This is one in my neighborhood. My square mile of 60,000 people. We lived there 35 years in this mile square. He said, this school is 35% black, but from many black cultures, 28% Asian, but from many Asian cultures, 21% Spanish, many Spanish cultures, 13% white, but also white ethnic, which means they're Russian Jews who don't speak English, but they're white. 2% Native Americans. He said, we teach in 11 languages in this school. Many more are spoken, but we teach in 11. I, I remember going outside, <laughs> looking at that old decrepit school building with maintenance deferred. This is exhibit A, why most respectable people don't put their kids in inner city school systems. But I remember thinking, does God know about this? 63 nations in my kids' school, that's more than a fourth of the nations of the world are in my kids' high school in one neighborhood in Chicago. If God knows about it, which I'm convinced he does, what does this mean? It means, my friend, um, I was... I was studying cities. I'd love to put you on the number seven train in downtown Manhattan, take you to Flushing, New York. If we got out from the Queens subway at the, past the Arthur Ashe tennis courts and the this New York Mets baseball stadium, the very next terminal is the end of the line in Flushing. When you get up out of that tube, you are, you are in the middle of 133 nations of the world in one zip code. That's two thirds of the nations of the world in one American zip code. Does God know about that? I'd love to give you a tour of London. There were 52 nations in the British Empire. Now all 52 live in London. I call it the Empire Strikes Back Syndrome. <laughs> um, British don't like it that much. But truth is, the fastest growing churches in London now are Nigerian and Kenyan. The gift of the foreign missions of 100 years ago is that the foreign missionaries are now back helping when the English have grown tired of evangelism, the Africans are coming back and planting churches in England. Think about that. Same with Paris. I'd love to give you a tour of the arrondissements. Paris is, Paris, 53 countries in the Francophone empire. My colleague, Glenn Smith, who's very well known to our brother here in Montreal. He and I have been studying this for many, many years. We started a program called Urban News. I don't know if you knew. Putting urban theological education in about 15 different French countries on five continents. And it's interesting. All those countries now live in Paris. Obviously, the Pen movement and others don't like that very much. But it's true. A hundred years ago, the British or the Germans built a railroad to Turkey, to the Bosporus. It was called Dragnakostan, the push to the east. Now Berlin is full of Turks. Germans don't like it that much. Sweden has been invaded by Serbians and others. Seattle, welcome to the human zoo called Seattle. Somalia, everybody's here, right? Microsoft is hiring 92% of their workers come from non-Washington state education institutions. They're from all over the world. This is the modern world. Nations are now in the neighborhoods. World mission is no longer across an ocean, it's across the street. 
in every major city. There are 505 cities of a million or more people. Seattle's one, Vancouver's another. 505 as of last January of a million or more people. And into those cities are like gigantic magnets being sucked nations of the world. This is the mission challenge. Mission today is in the migrant streams, city to city. I give you an example of China where I'm working with my doctoral students. If you can imagine Canada, Canada, right? 34 million or so in Canada. That's how many people will leave rural China today for urban China? Almost every year. It's the greatest migration in human history. Rural China coming to urban China is the biggest migration in human history happening in one country. No government can prepare for this. And no church can get their head around this. This is the greatest movement in, of reality in modern in, in history. And the church is now positioned in the cities to be at the nodes or nexus points where these migrations happen. I want you to know that your presence in the city is critical to world missions today and tomorrow. This is the way the world's being wired. For 2,000 years, we've had the Great Commission Go everywhere and disciple, but it's expensive. Now they come here at their own expense. It's the greatest bargain in world mission. But most Americans are uncomfortable with this. Many want to build walls to keep people out, right? I say let them come. The earth is the Lord, Psalm 24.1. Let the church be ready to disciple the nations in the neighborhoods of Seattle, right? So what I've tried to say tonight... And like the Egyptian mummy, I'm pressed for time, time to close. Um, I want you to know these two things. One is the Bible is an incredibly urban book. From beginning to end, God made a garden, but the future is the New Jerusalem. The Bible ends in a city. We have an urban future whether you like it or not. So use Seattle as practice time to get ready for the, if this is the minor league for the major league when we're gonna be galactic urban saints forever and ever, okay? In the city four square and, and beyond. Um, but God is doing us a favor by bringing nations to cities. And this is why we need new churches to understand that. New churches that will learn everything missionaries ever did. Missionaries learn languages and cultures, they, planted hospitals and clinics, all those things we now have to do here at home. We have to turn churches into malls, which can be accessed at any time. We need to make ministry out there where it can happen in the workplace, the marketplace, secure communities. We have to have multi-language pastoral teams, multi-worship styles of music, because you'll never reach the whole city with one music style. All of these things are happening in our lifetime. And I'm so pleased as I'm getting to know Justin and your, your group, of finding a network in Calvary Chapel Movement, which can be an R&D unit for the whole church, where you can give yourself permission to do research and development, take some risks, try some things, that's what R&D does. And in many cases, you're the first generation of the movement to take this seriously, to have the opportunity to come together and teach each other what you're learning. That's what you're doing this week. And I honor that, I really do. Um, I turn 80 next year, okay? Yeah, I'm ancient, ancient of days. Um, I can't do this forever. So I'm looking forward to those of you who are being raised up, to take this seriously. Um, this has been a, a surprising journey for me, for sure, as a farm kid, um, spiritual gift of logging and milking, uh, to come into cities like this and, and uh, realize what God is doing. 
to, to be a white guy with a black son and to have my two oldest boys run against each other for homecoming king in their inner city high school and my white kid beat my black kid and I said, Woody, how'd you do that? He said, well, I'm not quite sure, but I know I got the Arab, black, and Chinese vote. <laughs> this is, welcome to America. This was, his, this was his high school, okay? And now he's teaching in the Indian school, the Native Americans, and, and I couldn't be more proud of my kids because, because they grew up in the inner city and they adopted that language and culture and all their friends are different colors and different languages. They feel that's normal. They really do. And as white, my two white sons think they learned in the city how to be a minority in a world which is largely black, brown, and yellow. That's a gift. And they've learned to follow Jesus in the complexities of, of the city. And as parents, my wife and I couldn't, couldn't be more pleased that God has led us in this way. So those of you who are raising your children in the city, be encouraged. I hope you will. This is, this is what God is asking us to do. There are downsides, of course, but there are upsides, many of them. And so I want to say, to God be the glory, yeah. to the earth be peace, to the chapel movement be courage, and to our city be hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you.